Welcome friends and colleagues. We are continuing our process of stepping a little bit back into the creation story because we ran ahead of myself into the uh, exploration of men and women and their connection. And we left a few topics behind. One of the topics we left behind, which is certainly very, very important, is the image of God. Tselem Elohim. This is foundational to both Judaism and Christianity. Not so much in Islam, although some Sufi schools have brought it over uh, and incorporated it. The Sufis are much less beholden to the tradition out of which they uh, stepped out and uh, are mystical and willing to incorporate many forms of insights. So, the image of God. So, there isn't only image, there's also similarity. Tselem, usually translated as an image, we'll speak about what the word means and implies. And there is the mus or the mut likeness. We'll need to speak about that as well, and whether this is just a uh, another way of uh, saying tselem, or whether there is a dif difference in meaning that could teach us something. The basis for a discussion will be uh, a careful reading of uh, several verses, and then we will speak about how the words themselves, Tselem and Dmus, point us to certain ways, uh, the Near Eastern context. Uh, we will not get deeply into the Christian interpretation of uh, this foundational concept, uh, also for Christianity, because it's complicated by uh, having to take note of the uh, theology of the original sin, as well as the Trinity. And after all, if man is an image of God, and God could possess a physical body and be tripartite, that has somehow have to be reflected. Um, for example, Augustine talked about men being composed of memory, intellect, and will. The will uh, being what unites memory and intellect. Um, some forms, some Christians understand uh, the concept of the image of God very literally, which means the image of the human face, going back to the incarnated uh, God. And uh, this has become an issue in the current mask fights, there was a Republican congressman who refused to wear a mask based on the fact that he does not wish to obscure his image of God. And there was a court in which a Catholic school has argued that wearing masks transgresses their religious right because it covers up the image of God. So this is not uh, mainstream theology in Christianity, but such voices have been heard from time to time. We'll briefly touch on it. And after we discuss the philosophical and uh, uh, parallels to the image of God, 
will I'll share with you a discussion of this concept from Nishmas Chaim, uh, the the work uh, the Living Soul by Rabbi Menashe Ben Israel, which is a work on which I and Dr. Jacob Adler uh, are now working for publication. It's a work about the soul and. The image of God is an important issue there. All right, so let's look at Genesis 1. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 26. We'll start with that. And um, it says that, I'm going to read from the Eitzchayim translation, 26, and God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness. A point to make is that this is some kind of a generic man. It's not Adam, as we will see in the next verse. It's Adam, Adam. And it talks about making. The, the word in Hebrew simply means to make, which implies some kind of a formation rather than a creation. That is not how it's going to be presented in the very next verse. So, God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth and the creeping things which are on the land. A concept of sovereignty, of rulership, is making its way into the definition of especially likeness our image after our likeness. We will need to come back to that because that is central to an understanding which uh, I think arises from the very simple meaning of the verses. Then we go on and we have a somewhat different presentation. Verse 27. And God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So here is the man as Adam, the man, not not like a, a man or, or man in general in the previous verse. Here, God is creating man. He is not making man. And there's some kind of curious um, redundancy here in regard to male and woman, man and woman. Uh, he made uh, God made the man in His image, in the image of God. He created him. Repeats the word create. Male and female, he created them. So there have been theologians. Uh, one of the church fathers argued from here that uh, woman is not made in the image of God because it only says the man. And then it comes back to say that uh, he made them. He created them. Um, and the the motif of uh, rulership over all the beasts, actually, I'm sorry, not the beasts, the animals, the land, and all that, did not uh, transfer to a woman. So that the implication is that the man only, not the woman, is in the image of God. Um, therefore, this is why women cannot be priests, the priests, are in the image of Christ, and Christ the males. This is still a burning issue in terms of 
Catholic acceptance of women as priests. The image of God means that there is a specific image, uh, and uh, a woman is not included. So that that sounds strange to us in our time and day and time, but that is certainly um, an argument that surfaced from time to time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the other implication of the two verses, and one in which a generic man is made, and in the second one, the man is created, is that there may be two kinds of men. Now, uh, let me just share with you a, a story. Many, many years ago, decades ago, um, I was a student at Yeshua University, and uh, I had to take a course in biology. It was a prerequisite. So I signed up for uh, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler's class, uh, a general biology course, and at the first, in the first hour, he expounded upon a theory which I have not heard until then. I was a very faithful yeshiva student, uh, deeply involved in Talmudic learning, and uh, not really interested in broad-mindedness or considering things that seem to affect my faith. And he talked about two kinds of men. There was a man who was first fashioned from the earth, and um, that's the man who created a Neolithic uh, culture, drawings on the walls and the cities in China and India, which appear to be dated before the point of creation. In other words, they, they are 10,000 or older years. And um, uh, then there was a specific man by the name of Adam, the man, who was imbued with the soul, the spirit of God. He blew into his nostrils the soul, and that became the ancestor of humanity. What happened to that was not clear. Uh, perhaps they were wiped away by the flood. Perhaps they uh, assimilated and learned the ways of the superior man, etc. Uh, at that point, I walked out of the class. Um, I do regret not uh, having a relationship or giving up on the chance of having a relationship with this uh, great scholar who only passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, both uh, He was both uh, a scientist and a very learned rabbi who taught Talmud classes in the yeshiva. But um, I wasn't interested in the broad-mindedness at the time. It's the depth that I was working on at the time. Nevertheless, this uh, particular approach um, was at once one time proposed to harmonize science and religion. But, of course, the main criticism of that is is, is just totally opposite to the view expressed in the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, in the Talmud, which says that why was man created one? So that because we're all related, and anyone who saves the life of any man, it's like he saved uh, the world. Uh, because if somebody saved the life of Adam, of course he would save humanity. Um, the division of, the, of humanity into men with the soul and men without the soul is um, difficult. 
uh, and it opens the door to all kinds of uh, misogynist and racist ideas. So personally, I still do not accept it, but it was a good try. It came out of a good place, uh, trying to reconcile this. I remember this was the 70s, and uh, the conflict of science and religion was quite different then than it is now, as well as a lot of the implications of such ideas were not easily uh, grasped as the, the old uh, world cre earth the old world uh, creationism was was the opposing force um, it has kind of rolled past and uh, the current questions of uh, science and religions are almost uh, is almost forgotten uh, uh, 40 or 50 years later uh, but it's not your grandfather's uh, conflict any longer anyway to come back <coughs> I, I will, as I said, I'm not going to get deeply into the Christian view of it, but I can recommend a Wikipedia article uh, on it that discusses uh, both Jewish and Christian way. Uh, the Im image of God is in the Catholic Catechism and in Lutheran creeds of faith. It's an important topic for the Christians, but here I will focus on the Jewish perception. This is what Eitz Chaim Commentary says, no, uh, to, to 1.27, Every human has irreducible worth and dignity, because every human is fashioned the image of God. The second commandment forbids fashioning an image of God. I'll interrupt. Uh, this is what we'll speak about uh, right right next. Uh, the word tselem is not a nice word. It's usually used, as in the second commandment, for the image of uh, an idol. Uh, thou shalt not make yourself an image. So how is that? How is man then an image of God? Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, continued. We do not need one because every person represents the divine. We don't need an image, in other words, an idolatrous image, because every person is already representing the divine. Then he quotes from Sanhedrin 38a, which I briefly alluded to. Uh, a human king strikes coins in his image, and every one of them is identical. God creates every person with the die, meaning the cast of the first human being in divine image, and each one is unique. So this is kind of a, a standard Jewish explanation of the image of God. But um, there remains the problem that uh, of, of all the words um, to describe the worthiness and the greatness of men, and the special uniqueness of men, why do we use a word which is usually refers to as idols. Thou shall not make yourself a graven image. So, um, there are kind of two ways, I think, in, in which to approach this topic. And it should take us, I start with the disagreement between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy about images. Now, both of these denominations have a lot of images. Um, anyone who has ever been to the Eastern Orthodox Church or even a home where there are things called icons that rep rep that, that are sacred objects uh, on the walls of each home on Catholic churches recognizes that there are a lot of images there. Now, uh, we, we will not get into the topic of exactly why that is, but the 
theologians of these respective denominations had to deal with this. So uh, St. Augustine's explanation is that they are simply to focus the worshipper's mind. He doesn't pray to the image. It reminds him of uh, God and uh, and focuses his prayers. Uh, interestingly, uh, Eastern Orthodox says that no, there is actually divinity to these images. There is a presence of God within these images. And therefore, worshipping the images is just a roundabout way of worshipping God. So here we have two two, I think, two approaches to what an image means. And I based a subsequent discussion on Moshe Halberter's book, Idolatry, which is actually very interesting and good way to enter into uh, this topic of idolatry philosophically. And um, he points out that, this is based on previous sources, that there are different ways of representation. For example, we can have an exact copy. A photograph is an exact copy where in two dimensions each detail of the photograph corresponds exactly to the object you represent. There's also painting in which certain details may be exaggerated or emphasized, but it's nevertheless uh, a pretty faithful uh, a representation of the original. However, there's also representational representation. What does that mean? So uh, you 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 have a scene of a soldier at a train station who is going off to war, and his beloved fiancé uh, at the last moment gives him his curt handkerchief, uh, so something from the old movies, and uh, he puts it into his. Uh, breast pocket to always cherish the the sight of it and the smell of it reminds me of his beloved now that's not a picture of the beloved it's in no way a copy but it's a representation in that it stands for and symbolically represents uh, his fiance to him so that she's always with him even in the trenches as the bullets whiz by so this can serve for us as an entry into the distinction between Selim, the image, and Moose, and likeness. It is not that man is a copy, an exact uh, photograph. Man, however, could be a cubist painting in which certain divine qualities are represented in his soul, the soul being itself divine. That would be the concept of Selim. Uh, in idolatry, there is an indwelling of divine nature in the particular image or statue. But in men, it is appropriate to speak of a divine power, divine capacity or capability, whether it's his intellect, his soul, and there's a lot of discussion of exactly what that might be. But it would be a uh, indwelling of some divine quality in men. It could also represent a relationship with God and man, the so-called relational explanation of image. Being able to relate to God in terms of worship and prophecy is what is like a handkerchief of, of, of a fiancé to a soldier. It is um, representative of the 
relation and relation, the end of the relation, God, God's nature within men, um, and that would be called a tselem. Uh, the moose, on the other hand, likeness could represent, as well as a handkerchief would represent likeness, uh, something of the divi- relation to the divine. Let's let's pivot a little bit into the Near Eastern thought of the times, which makes it somewhat more compelling. Uh, the following explanation uh, has been offered. Um, in in the Near Eastern religions, um, the ruler was imparted with some of the nature of God. He was the only one who could relate to God. For example, we know from Egyptian sources that Pharaoh went to the Nile every morning to pick up or load up on the divine power of the Nile, and therefore he was also a god. Moses met him in the morning by the Nile uh, in the Ten Commandments um, to impart God's uh, commands. So that would be one way to understand why what Pharaoh was doing at the Nile, as we know from uh, ancient Egyptian sources. Uh, and only the emperor or the king had this power. So in that representation, only the king had uh, the image of God. And this is what it's called, the image of God, in Near Eastern writings and Assyrian writings. Uh, and what the Torah is doing here is coming to tell us, no, man has been appointed to rule over the world, <clears throat> the animals and the land, and as it says in verse 26, that is the image of God. Every man, every single man, and not only the ruler, every single man has that power, that relationship, and that's the image and the likeness. In in this explanation, image and likeness could represent two, or could mean two different aspects of uh, the similarity between man and God. One is uh, indwelling uh, spiritual power within man, and two, the physical uh, and uh, temporal power over nature uh, as representation of God. For those who want to explore these ideas further, there is a book by Yohanan Mufs, M-U-F-F-S, which is, uh, uh, he, was, he was a theologian in the Jewish Theological Seminary and uh, wrote a book called And the Personhood of God. Um, it's uh, The Personhood of God, Biblical Theology, Human Faith and Divine Image, Dr. Yohanan Mavs. Um, it is available on Google Books and published by Jewish Lights Publishing for people of all faiths, all backgrounds, 2005. Okay, we'll continue. Um, I think that we're kind of nearing the time that um, I uh, usually want these uh, talks to be. Uh, when we first started, I gave long talks. Uh, I took advice to try to limit them 
to between 15 and 20 minutes and we were at almost 24 minutes. So I'm going to use the opportunity to step back, but uh, at next uh, conversation we have, or monologue, I suppose, <laughs> I will uh, go with, with you over the relevant discussion in the book Nishmat Chaim, Rabbi Menashe Ben Israel, and the words Betzalmeinu in our image, Betzalmeinu in our form. Thank you for listening, and may you have only blessings. <laughs>